Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Down with D&D. My name is Sean Merwin, and I am here with my co-host, Teos Abadia. Happy few days after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and on and on and on. Sean, it is the time of the year when all the wonderful holidays come at us relentlessly, one after the other. Yes. I'm excited for that. I have my tree up. I have my house decorated. I am ahead of the game. Almost everything has been ordered from small, the smallest companies I could find online, and they are coming to me. So I'm feeling good. That's that's the way to shop this year, apparently, if you want to breathe. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we we can't have a Christmas tree because our cat absolutely destroys everything that we bring into the house. Um, so we have one string of lights that you, that Teos can see behind me. Um, <laughs> And then a, great. a group of stuffed Santas. and Group? Nice. A group, yes, a small group. One for each member of my family. Um, That's good. And three also mirrors the old stories of like three golden bags or balls or whatever they were from ancient times. Anyway. I, I think you're making that up. Maybe. It's, but I, I think it's on Wikipedia. I've heard that three is a magic number. <laughs> but I, I cannot verify or dispute uh, that brings uh, us to our new singing segment of the yes. show <laughs> yes where i will sing three is a magic number but you know in the style of blind melon yeah <laughs> now I'm, I'm totally imagining us breaking into that and it's it would yeah. be great if we could sing uh i do want to say that i'm very thankful since it was just thanksgiving for all of the very kind comments we've had on uh twitter especially by listeners so mm-hmm. thank you folks it it gives us fuel it, it is the soul coin of our engine. I don't know. Right. So you just send us your souls and we will continue <laughs> to do this. I, I think is what Teos is saying. I, I've just gone straight to the um, yeah, humbug uh, part, part oh, of our man. show. Yeah. No, no. Well, as we said last week, we're going to cut our new segment down a bit so we can actually discuss Tasha's and the Icewind Dale Ram of the Frostmaiden adventure, both during our episodes. So let us dive into the news presently. The first bit of news, uh, Teos, you wanted to talk about D20 Monkey. Yeah, so Brian Patterson, who's known as D20 Monkey uh, on Twitter and on his website, he has been a staple of the Dungeon Dragon scene, going back to those you know ancient, ancient days of I don't know forty, mm-hmm. you know, and and he began this comic that uh, would come out you know, at least once a week and you could check it out and kind of laugh along with, with what uh, the characters are doing in their lives at the gaming table. He brought us into the world of Carthoo and, you know, all these really interesting pieces. And he used that comic as a vehicle to talk about a lot of different important subjects, uh, often kind of hard subjects, but done lightly through the comic. Uh, he posted the final comic on November 25th and it was, I think, very emotional for all of us who have read it, and certainly for him to end this wonderful series. And so uh, I would suggest if you haven't seen this comic before, you know, now you know it's a finite project, you can go out and check it out and go through it. It's wonderful. 
Uh, and if you are a fan of it, I would recommend going and leaving a message in the comments because I bet Brian would like that. So Excellent. thank you, Brian. Yep. We have, with the ending of one, we have the beginning of new with uh, two shows that are on Ginny Loveday's Twitch channel. The first is called Designer's Den. Now, uh, Jenny is an organized play champion and you know has been very active in the organized play community for a number of years, as well as being a writer, editor, and so on. And so now she has a Twitch and a YouTube channel. And the two shows that have launched on that platform are first The Designer's Den. Let's try that again. The Designer's Den with Jenny Loveday. Uh, she's had guests so far like Fenway Jones, uh, Tony Winslow Brill, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Darren Anderson, Thomas Valley, Joe Rosso, uh, Jonathan Connor Self, JB Little, on and on and on. Names that if you are familiar with, especially the organized play community, uh, you will recognize those names as creators, designers, and so on. So that is a great podcast to catch if you are interested in topics along the lines of game design. The second podcast on that platform is Jeff Talks RPGs with Jeff Stevens. You should know Jeff from his multitude of projects worked on on the DMs Guild um, and continuing on from there, he showing no signs of slowing down. And he looks at uh, RPGs through different lenses each episode. Um, the most current one, he was talking with consumers of RPG products to kind of get an idea for what do consumers look for and what's a good way to catch a consumer's eye and, uh, you know, sell to the current batch of RPG consumers. So that is a second offering on Ginny's new platform that you can see. It's twitch.tv slash Ginny, G-I-N-N-Y, love day. Yeah, Ginny's awesome. Uh, always uh, a you know, puts a smile on people's faces at conventions. Uh, just a wonderful person. And these are two great shows. I'm excited. It's neat that she's doing this. Really, uh, I've enjoyed what I've seen so far and I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Yep. So give, give that a view at your leisure. Um, our Kickstarter for the week is Cobalt Press's Southlands 5e, A Realm of High Adventure. As of the recording, it just launched today and it is already funded. Wow. I think they were asking for 50000 and they have shot past that already. The um, Southlands is a Cobalt Press uh, setting that they've done for the last few editions of D&D, but they have updated it now for 5e. It is a self-contained and standalone campaign setting. It will offer player options, an updated world book with all new chapters, and a fantastical city book to launch a memorable memorable campaign in. Uh, so the Kickstarter itself offers that hardcover Southlands world book in both regular and limited editions, a uh, hand-tooled leather edition, if you so choose, the hardcover City of Cats, which is the home base for adventures, and then a soft cover Southlands player's guide with heroic options, subclasses, and races. Sweet. Yep. And if Cobalt Press is anything, they are creators of very cool D&D &D products. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, 
you know you're getting a quality not just a quality uh, product but a quality game product as well speaking of cobalt press mm-hmm. there is just as of the almost the moment of our recording uh, has been released on their website for free, the latest in the Trapmaster article series by Greg Marks, Organized Play Great. Uh, this one, he has been passing, you know, we've covered how he talks through different types of traps. And this time he's talking about traps that you take with you unwittingly. So it's the idea of items that are trapped, but they look like treasure. So you take them, take you, take them with you, the item, and probably spring it over time. It's the perfect thing to be on a website called Cobalt Press because this is exactly what should belong in a cobalt layer. Yep. It's things like gauntlets that, you know, after the third punch, it you know, might burst in flame or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those I love those kinds of traps that um, sort of tweak the player that just has to have everything, has to have every bit of treasure and use every bit of treasure. Um, and, it's, and it's not as far going as, as a cursed item, which, you know, can, can bug you, right? It can, it can right. be too much. And so yeah. this is like a, a, an aha gotcha, but then you're done. It's not, yeah. and now you must find a, a yeah. priest to remove this or something. Right. And I love those when they are sprung at the worst possible times, right? It's like every yeah. other part of the game. You don't want to do it on its own, right? You don't want a trap on its own because you just overcome the trap and that's it. You want to be part of the ongoing milieu of the story um so yeah those are those are great depths your armor falls off oh your ac was 22 now it's 10 that's a shame yep good times good times all right so that's our news segment we can now begin our look at tasha's cauldron of everything the latest hardcover release from wizards of the coast last week we just gave you a quick glimpse of how we're going to cover it which is in short bursts uh you know 15 20 25 minutes at a time starting from the beginning and working our way through so we're first going to talk about the introduction chapter um, which gives what most uh, veteran gamers would consider your typical standard uh canned advice but (laughs) you know no-brainers, I don't like the term no-brainer because everything should be in, involving your brain. You should be thinking about what you're saying, not just saying it. So even this sort of no-brainer uh, advice, I, I want to delve into a little bit. Yeah. So the, the first bit is the standard, it's all optional um, quote. And it says, everything in this book is optional. Each group guided by the DM decides which of these options, if any, to incorporate into a campaign. You can use some, all, or none of them. We encourage you to choose the ones that best fit with your campaign story and with your group's style of play. Yeah, and again, if you've read many, many books on gaming, this is standard advice. But I think it's really important for players and DMs to hear this over and over and over again because sometimes with players, there's a sense of entitlement in that if it has been published, it is therefore something that they should be able to use. And that is only true to a point because D&D is a cooperative game. And if there comes a time when in that cooperative spirit, something doesn't fit or doesn't work, we need to be able to say no to it. And as a DM, you need to hear that advice 
for for pretty much the same reason. There may be things that are put into the game. Oh, this monster, it's from the monster manual. So therefore I should be able to use it as is. Uh, no questions asked. That's not always true. There are some times when things are overpowered or things don't quite work right in, in every situation with a monster, as we will talk about probably later today when we review, uh, when we review uh, Icewind Dale. So just remember, D&D is a game and, it, and it's a storytelling machine. And it works best when all of those pieces that make up the game and machine are curated and understood. Uh, so just because something's in a book doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean it fits. It doesn't mean it's right for every situation. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, it's also interesting for me to look at this. Everything is optional and, and compare it to the wording that's in Xanathar's, which is it's, you know, kind of sister book. It's 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 uh, older sibling. Uh, and this is heavier language, right? It's trying to be a little more in the past. It said nothing here is required for a D&D campaign. This is not a fourth core rule book here. It, it adds extra layers to try to encourage you to pick and choose what you want. Uh, because I will say, I think to most people, when they first think about these books, they do think of them a little bit like in fourth edition, you had, you know, Player's Handbook 2, Player's Handbook 3. Uh, it's obviously not just for players, it's just for DMs, but but it does feel sort of like a big extension. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is important to say the game should not expect all of this to be live and on in any one campaign. Mm -hmm. And it's totally fine if you do have a campaign that allows everything um, just you need to be aware of what that means for the game itself and the stories that evolve from those games. And something I don't see here, which is, which, you know, it wasn't in, it was in Xanathar's, but later not in the beginning is the idea of, of mentioning the plus one rule. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that it's interesting that they don't say that here because I think that has been uh a good has been good advice in the past to say that you can use the players and a player can create characters with the player's handbook and choose one other source. Mm -hmm. And that can be a good way to, to handle it. any individual campaign. Use this plus this book. Yeah. And it doesn't say that here. And it could have. Right. And, and that goes back to that guidance of, of, you know, curating what you want in your campaign because different elements create different experiences. And you know, it's, it's very easy to just forget that and just let everything go. And, oh, yes, we're going to put the uh, magic rules from uh, Dark Sun. You know, the, what, what's that called when you... Uh, defiling? Defiling, right. Yeah, okay, D Dark Sun comes out, defiling's in it. I'm just going to use that in my campaign because it's out. And if you don't stop and think about what that is actually going to mean, not just for the mechanics of the game, but for the story that's in your game, uh, your things are going to get out of control pretty quickly. So yeah. uh, it's just good to be reminded every once in a while, especially if you're so steeped in all of the rules, that it's okay to say no. It's okay to curate and to call these extra rules to create the experience that's best for everybody. Uh, the next is a sidebar, a note about Unearthed Arcana. And it reminds us that much of the material in this book originally appeared in Unearthed Arcana articles. And uh, some of those articles and offerings from Unearthed Arcana didn't resonate with fans and were set aside. 
so uh, they thank the fans who gave feedback on these Unearthed Arcana articles to help refine them in the forms that they're presented in Tasha's. And I think it's important to remember how much 5e has been shaped by playtest feedback and questionnaire feedback. Um, yeah. I know I know there are things in the game that some of the designers would not want in the game, but the players reacted so well to it that it became part of the game anyway. And sometimes they don't agree with the feedback given, but they alter it a bit. So its presentation is different. And I think in this book, you know, there were some very hard discussions that took place around psionics being magic. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a feeling by wizards for whatever reason that that, that has already been done. It's already been said that psionics equals magic. So we're not going to change that, even though people seem not to like it. But we are going to maybe not put in some sort of uh, lots of psionic subclasses in this book. We're going to change that a bit. And, and when we do present something, we're going to present it slightly differently because of that feedback. Mm -hmm. For sure. Next in the introduction are 10 rules to remember. And the first thing I thought was, wow, they must really feel it's important to repeat these. Yeah. Uh, because obviously, especially from new or beginner players, uh, they may get lots of questions about these things. So they, they give 10 rules to remember. And I, before I did, I, I was, I want, I wanted to see several, I wanted to see pages worth of, <laughs> FAQs, basically, you know, what are the most misunderstood or, you know, rules that have been used incorrectly? Uh, so I, I three right off the top of my head. Um, when I've run games at conventions, I'll often, you know, run six, seven, eight tables over the weekends and seeing new and different players each time. What are the rules that are misused or misunderstood the most? Um, the first one is flanking. Sure. Uh, at, at least one player in every 10 that come to the table, you know, we're playing, if we play with minis, they're going to say, and I move over here. So I'm flanking. I have advantage. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's an optional rule. That's not, that's yeah. uh, not in the player's handbook. They're like, really? And I'm like, yes. Um, so flanking is an optional rule. And I could go on for days talking about why I, I dislike flanking. Uh, but just, just remember that uh, if you're, especially if you run in public or um, if you're running an official campaign using only the player's handbook rules, uh, flanking's not there. Another one is the way armor class is calculated. Um, a lot of us are used to uh, previous play sets, let's say, where you can stack bonus upon bonus upon bonus upon bonus to drive your armor class sky high. 5e does not, is not supposed to accommodate that because the numbers are supposed to be flatter. So when I say AC is calculated in one way, not multiple ways, what I mean is if you are a barbarian and you get to add your constitution bonus to your armor class and you multi-class as monk, where you can add your wisdom to your armor class, those two do not combine. You have to choose one way or another. So if you have an item or a skill or a feat or anything that says you can 
uh, figure your armor class by taking blank and adding blank. You can't do that in other areas. You can only do that for the one. You can choose which way you do it, right? but you can't combine ways. And the last one I wanted to point out was inspiration, I thought was a great addition to the game. Uh, it wasn't a perfect system, uh, but it was a nod to sort of more story-based, indie-based games uh, using character traits to gain bonuses or take penalties to get a bonus later based on the traits of your characters interacting with the story. I thought, cool, we're moving in the right direction. And then inspiration started to be used as a reroll mm -hmm. rather than as to gain advantage on a uh, check. Yeah. Now, just, just a reminder to players out there, advantage does not mean reroll. Advantage means when you make a roll, you can decide before you roll if you want to roll two dice and take the higher of the two. Um, making it a reroll makes it much, much stronger than it should be. As, it's, as yeah, I, I and, could spend hours talking about this and because right. in comparing them to action points or anything, but yeah, yeah, it's what you're saying is absolutely true. They, they are yeah. not supposed to be rerolls, but you do see that both the desire from players and yeah. even DMs using it as rerolls all and, the time. And and that's an important design dis design distinction that I think we talked about before. Is if you give players something that feels so good and works so well, they are going to either purposefully or without thinking about it, do that rather than do something else. So yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, waving a finger at the players that want to do it because I understand turning a failure into a success feels super good. And designers should come up with a way to do that. And, and have uh, for certain feats, for certain um, abilities in the game. But inspiration is not one of them. So let's talk about those top 10 now rules to remember. Um, one, the DM adjudicates the rules. Cool. Uh, even in organized play, the DM needs to have that ability. They need to have that option open to them. But they need to understand the power that comes with that ability. So if you are going to, as the DM, adjudicate rules in a certain way, think about the consequences of doing that, whether that's in the favor of the characters or not, because what you do um, affects both the game and the story. So uh, players, I, I always tell players, trust your DMs. And I always tell the DMs, be act in a trustworthy manner. And, and everyone should be happy. Anything to add to that? No, I, I think it's, yeah, it, it's, it's good advice to have. It's a good number one. And it, before it was a little lower in the list of, that Xanathar provided, which also has 10 things. And I think it's good that this elevated to the first one, right? It's, it's your game. You have this power. Yep. Uh, two, ex exceptions supersede general rules. This needs to be explicitly stated in complicated games like D&D, &D, where if you have a set of rules and then something within the game breaks that rule, you need to say breaking that rule is fine because this supersedes that. Uh, I think it also needs to be clear, though, that the general should always be the default 
if those exceptions that are supposed to supersede those rules are vague or, or just hint, even just hinted at, um, general should be the default and let those yeah. exceptions be exceptions. They are designed to be exceptions, not just, well, we're going to break the general rules because I feel like it. The other thing is that these rules are for both a player and DM because the book is for both. For sure. And this feels like the kind of thing that is the domain of the DM, but it, it, this could have said, you know, if you're a player and you are, you know, seeking out an exception, maybe pause and ask why, right? And, and, and whether it should be uh, used, right? And that's because that's the source of power creep, right? Right. I have found an exception so that I can be better than general, right? Right, exactly. And that's maybe why, that's fun. Maybe it's not. Yeah, and that's why I like um, games. I'm tending more now towards games where those general rules take care of everything, and th there can always be exceptions. But the exceptions are more narrative based rather than mechanical, mechanically based. You know, let let the let the story. Uh, become bigger than the rules rather than the rules being bigger than the story. But Hey, that's just me. Yeah. No, that's fair. Um, advantage and disadvantage. They describe what they mean. And I think we all can agree that advantages roll 2d 20 and take the higher and disadvantages 2d 20 take the lower. Um, but it's, it's not wrong. I think to emphasize how important that mechanic is in five E. And I think it's the concept, you know, I, I think some of these are on this list literally because Jeremy Crawford gets asked about them all the time. Right. And, and I think this issue is, is that you treat them like an entire stack. And if you have both, all stacks are canceled, right? And, and that's the part that I think is most confusing to people. You can have two sources of disadvantage, one of advantage, you got nothing. Yeah. And it's important to remember rules-wise that if you have both, you have neither because right. there are a lot of things that say if you have advantage x or if you have disadvantage y happens and if you have both you have neither so all of those riders are thrown out uh if there is a rule that says if you have advantage it's most important for sneak attack and this is where i see the most um argument at, at the table where a, a rogue will have advantage and disadvantage and say that they, they have sneak attack and or they have uh, advantage and disadvantage, but they have someone within five feet of a target. And you just have to always remember that if they have both, they have neither. So, no, they can't sneak attack if they have advantage and disadvantage, yeah. but they can sneak attack if they have advantage and disadvantage and someone within five feet of their that. right. Because then you have that one because because right. of the way it's worded, it's not exactly. another advantage source. It's simply what enables you to sneak attack. Yep. Exactly. A really good one is also darkness because darkness is really strange. If you look at it, you think of like, well, you know, I can't see anything, so I'm at disadvantage. But that because that negates all advantage, it can actually be a very smart move in various right. situations to have darkness because you're essentially kind of leveling the playing field of what happens. And if right. you have a source of advantage, you're fighting normally. 
Right. And that can be strange to think of having advantage in darkness, but as long as that's still valid because it right. doesn't say otherwise, then what you've done is cancel anything you're fighting normally, but right. others are probably fighting at disadvantage. Yeah, and it's almost like darkness is backwards. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, the number fourth, uh, the number fourth, the number four uh, on the list is reaction timing, uh, which is the trigger that causes a reaction um, happens before the reaction happens unless otherwise noted. So if something happens when a trigger occurs, that thing that happens, that reaction always happens after the trigger, right. the triggering event, unless otherwise noted. And it's one, another rule I always see people arguing is whether you can take a reaction on your own turn. And the answer is this is fifth edition and you sure can. <laughs> and that's especially important, I think, for monsters to remember. It's yeah. also important for characters because you can do things like provoke and then use your shield spell. Um, but but monsters have a lot of tactical situations. The few that do have reactions can have tactical reasons for those reactions to be used on their turn. So it's very important for them. Yep. Uh, number five talks about proficiency bonus. And again, uh, this is important because that proficiency bonus holds a lot of weight in 5e. Um, it's, it's a significant, when numbers shrink like they did for 5e, that becomes a significant thing. And what they want to remind you as um, when your proficiency bonus applies to a role, you can only add the bonus once, even if multiple things say your bonus applies. So if you get proficiency bonus on a weapon for three different reasons, you don't get to add it three separate times. It's just the once. Um, there are things that tell you you can double your proficiency bonus or things that say you must have, you have your proficiency bonus, but you only double it or have it once uh, before you apply it. Uh, number six, bonus action spells. This one catches people all the time. Oh, yeah. This, I, this has shown up since the beginning of 5e, and you still see it at tables everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's if you cast a bonus action spell, mm -hmm. you cannot cast another spell on that same turn unless it's a cantrip. Mm -hmm. uh, and a cantrip with a casting time of one action. So that's, that's a very important, you know, you can't bonus action uh, healing word and then cure wounds, which clerics always want to do, right? Right, because cure wounds is a level one spell. It's not a cantrip, mm -hmm. and you cast a bonus action spell, so you can't do it. And yep. it, it it takes a little practice to get that down, but it is an important part of the balance of the game. Yep. And you also cannot cast two bonus action spells. Right. Right. Um, you can't convert an action to a bonus action. Yep. Yep. So concentration. This is something that it's it's sort of hard to remember sometimes, especially if you don't play a spellcaster a lot, that one, when you cast a concentration spell, you cannot cast another concentration spell or do anything else that requires concentration. If you do, then you lose the first thing that you're concentrating on. And if you take damage or some other thing happens while you're concentrating on a spell or an ability, you have to make a constitution saving throw equal to 10 
or half the damage that you've taken, whichever number is higher. And if you fail that saving throw, you have lost that spell. Uh, number eight was temporary hit points. There are a lot of temporary hit points in 5e, I have found out, especially at higher levels, uh, to the point where you may have three or four or five or more spells or abilities that are giving you temporary hit points. Um, so they do not stack. If you have eight temporary hit points and you gain an ability that gives you some seven temporary hit points, you get to choose which one you take, the eight or the seven. Uh, and if you lose that eight, that seven is, is not magically hanging around somewhere. Uh, it is one and done. You cannot have more than one source going. Uh, rounding down. This is this, this comes up a lot. Yep, this is a standard rule that's been standard for a while. Um, whenever you divide or multiply a number in the game, round down if you end up with a fraction, even if that fraction is one half or greater. And last but not least, it's have fun. I love this advice and I can't stand this advice <laughs> because it is important to remember sometimes, especially if you run a lot of games or, or if you work in the field that this is supposed to be fun for everyone, for the DM, for the players, for everybody. So try to have fun. The, the, what I dislike about the advice is in some cases, and I've been in this situation that fun is a zero sum game based on the people that you have around you. Something that would be great fun for one player is absolutely horrible uh, for another player. And to the point where they want to walk away from the table and vice versa. So the, have fun is, is tough advice there's a lot behind it in how to do that. You could almost make whole podcasts about how to have fun playing D and D. <laughs> we should try that. Yeah. So what I would rather see them say is facilitate fun, whether you're the DM or a player or someone watching, think about everybody at the table and work as part of the game to make sure everyone has fun. That's the advice I want. Yeah, I, that, that's good. I, I like that. That is a better emphasis because there is a big difference between that selfish have fun and the group have fun. And, and this does, the, the way it's written does not delineate that. And it should. Mm -hmm. that's, so, that's the magic of D&D &D. versus playing a video game, right? You're not just sitting there running through some video game, role-playing game. You are in a group activity and this is social and, and that's the fun fun is through that lens and, right yeah so that is the opening uh intro to tasha's we're going to really quickly touch on the first part of chapter one here which is character options i've done my talking for the day i'm going to hand things over to teos now yeah, so we will uh, go through these fairly quickly because the, there isn't, You first of all, folks have probably heard about what's taking place here and it's been talked about by Wizards for some time. The big change here in, in character options is customizing your origin. And here, what they are doing is, well, it's written in a sort of interesting way, but essentially what's taking place is giving you the ability to say that all members of a race do not have to be the same. And it 
the book, Tasha's, does a little bit of sort of saying the history of the game is very intentional in wanting to make races into archetypes, right? Elves are dexterous. Uh, dwarves are hardy, right? And that is why ability scores were tied to them um, for a lot of the game. But, it, but it's all changed over time. It wasn't exactly that at the very beginning, and it wasn't that in the middle. But it's, it's changed over time, and it's been a powerful tool to be able to say elves are you know, thin and graceful and, and, and dwarves are hardy. But with that, and this is the part they don't actually say, is that it can be harmful to uh, turn races into archetype because of what we have going on in our real world, mm -hmm. right? That everybody is this way. It colors groups of peoples and it creates a box when life doesn't truly work that way. And they don't quite address that, but, but that's, I think, you know, that's where these changes have come from. And what they allow you to do is actually a, a very wide uh, customization set of, uh, set of customization options that you can choose to change up your character. So <clears throat> at the very basic, it's what we might think of the most when you think of choosing a race mechanically is that you get ability scores. Mm -hmm. Right, so you get a bonus to constitution for being a dwarf, and if you're a half orc, you can get strength, and so on. So the first thing is to be able to swap those bonuses to another attribute. And the only rule is that you can't double up. So you can't if you have a plus two to wisdom and a plus one to dex, you could put the plus two to wisdom into strength and the plus one into intelligence, but you can't put them all on intelligence. Mm -hmm. Can't give yourself a plus three. Uh, that seems very fair. You then have a language swap. So if you speak goblin, you could choose something else because you didn't grow up amongst goblins as a goblin. Um, and then they have a, a group called proficiencies, which covers really that section of, of sort of toolkit type uh, advancement you get. And there's a little chart that helps you navigate it. So if you have proficiency in a skill, you can choose a different skill. If you are proficient in say armor, like heavy armor, you could change that to be a simpler martial weapon or tool. Simple weapon, simple weapon or tool. Martial weapon, simple martial weapon or tool. And a tool is a tool or a simple weapon. So you have these sort of conversions. You can't quite go from say tool to skill or armor to skill or things like that. But, but generally within their category, you can swap them around. Mm -hmm. The last thing it gives you in this little section about modifying your, your race as your origin is that you can create a custom origin with a package of benefits. So you can ditch the choice of being an elf altogether and you could just create something and you get a, a, a number of these benefits. So you get you know, a language and a proficiency, I forget exactly what the mix is, but it gives you a little mix to create your package for whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Anything I, you want to add to this part? No, I, I think that makes sense. And I'm glad that they kept an eye on power here because, you know, as, as you said, this is a change that was long needed. And so I'm glad it was made, but this is this story, uh, you know, lore driven hobby we have is also a game yeah. and it's a game that sometimes people try to break so it was good that they said, well, yes, you can take switch out your armor proficiency to gain 
a simple martial weapon proficiency or a tool proficiency, but I'm glad they didn't say you can choose a tool proficiency and then be uh, proficient with heavy armor. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. Nothing can turn be turned into armor, and that right. is smart. You're right. And so, and so they 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 did this responsibly by keeping an eye on, you know, the the power creep and the mechanics of the game, uh, which I am glad they did. So, so this was fascinating in a Dragon um, Talk podcast episode. Jeremy Crawford said that they don't see ability score bonuses from Origin race as being part of game balance. And I had to really kind of think on that, but, but I think where it's coming from is that that, that combination of you rolling or point, point buying your ability scores plus race is a swing that the game tolerates is the way I think of it. Okay. And it doesn't matter that you chose elf or half orc or whatever that the game does not rest upon that decision is the way I think of it. Okay. Maybe Jeremy would say it otherwise, but, but no, because no. I thought that was so fascinating to say that this is not part of game balance. I'm like, uh, you know, no. this is what people sit there scratching their heads of which is my optimum race choice. Right. But, right. but I think that's where it comes from is that the game balance tolerates this. Mm -hmm. and, and that makes sense. Definitely. I would, when you said that I had the same reaction as you, like, what? wait a second. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah and, and that's, that's where it comes from is that, you know, that plus two and that plus one, it's not like we have to trick someone into choosing halfling or we have to, you know, force them that, well, you've got to give up stone cutting or, you know, it, it's the yeah. game handles it. And I, and I think that probably makes sense. And that's why this could happen. Sure. So even more of a wide ranging is that they now allow you to change a skill or a subclass over time. Okay. Um, and this is, it, it does say with DM permission, uh, you can swap a skill you have had for one you would rather have. You know, I really never use survival, so I wanna take, you know, history. Mm -hmm. uh, they suggest a time that you could do this whenever you gain an ability score improvement uh, or feat as part of your, your class package, then you would do that. Mm -hmm. um, Similarly, they allow you to change a subclass if your DM thinks that's okay. They suggest that you could do this when you hit a level where you would have gained a subclass feature. You lose all of your old subclass benefits and features and so on, and you get all of the new ones. Um, the DM can optionally decide that you have to train to do this. So you're given two uh, days, uh, two day, two times the new level in class number of days to train. So your 10th level, 20 days uh, to do the training. Uh, I don't know that this matters greatly, but okay. Um, you can also require gold pieces of 100 gold pieces times the new level in class. You know, okay. Um, what I was more interested in uh, is that there is this tiny hint of story here, because one of the things that happens to me is, well, explain this, right? Like, you know, you were uh, one type, now you're switching to another training and gold are the least of my worries, but they hint at this with just a little example where they say there's a sorcerer who wants the draconic bloodline. They might need something from an ancient dragon, like a drop of blood or something like that. And that's the only place where they sort of address the sense of it all. And this is the part I would have liked to, to see them spend a little more time on, which is how do you you know, reinforce this making sense because that's the thing that I think I always struggle with in campaigns. When a character, when a player says to me, you know, I am not digging my character. Mm -hmm. 
So I either want to kill them off or change them. And, and a lot of times I'll facilitate that change through a narrative right. engine, something that changes them, converts them, whatever, and they come out different. Um, and, you know, only this little stories here, and I wish there, there were more there. Um, there is a section called sudden change where the DM can permit a change based on a sudden realization. Um, they experience a beautiful place, meet a God, you know, something like that. It, something causes them to have a lot of inter self introspection. That's, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, but again, it doesn't tell the DM here's how to make that happen. Right. And I think that could have been there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, you know, one of the strangest parts of say first edition was something like a fallen paladin where that, that change was sort of part of the story and they did give not just mechanical uh, consequences, although those were pretty severe, Oof, uh, yeah. but you know, they, they gave sort of role-playing uh, things, how to get your paladin hood back. If, yeah. if you did something wrong or, you know, if you were a monk and you became chaotic, what, what happened, you know, all of those sorts of things that they did handle um, story-wise that uh, would have been at least a bit of a template for how to, how to talk about it here. Yeah. And then the other thing that I had as a, as a big sort of thought when I made it through this section is that this is actually really remarkable in terms of a point in D&D's history that we are codifying such vast changes, right? Mm -hmm. um, first of all, because play used to be so disposable, you would create a character, no matter how much you liked it, they're probably going to die and die quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what sure. happened, especially in original Dungeons and Dragons, but all through basic, all through advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and even into 2E, characters died a lot. And sometimes the adventures, you know, recommended you have like 11 characters at the table spread right. amongst the players and that's how you're supposed to survive these threats and so they were just disposable so like why would you ever need to do these things they're going to die and this is so these rules to me recognize the desired permanence and story emphasis of your character mm -hmm. and then because we're attached we want them to be memorable and to fit our idea narratively of what they should be and so we want to be able to tweak them and, and now it's you know, fully legal to do so, right? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that is the beginning of chapter one, talking about customizing your origin. And we will continue next week with our look at chapter one and onward in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. But we are now about to go into the frozen north, Teos. We are about to visit more places of interest in Icewind Dale. Last week we had talked about the first four, I believe. Yeah. The Juke's Bell, the Black Cabin, uh, the Cackling Chasm. No, three, because we did three. talk about the Cave yeah. of the Berserkers, which is what we will cover now. So we will continue then our look at these interesting and exotic places and quests in Icewind Dale, Ram of the Frostmaiden. So these uh, are places that you can get to via rumors or quest objectives or sometimes uh, secrets or rumors or even random wilderness encounters, which is what the Cave of the, cave of the Berserker is. Um, you are only able to access it from a wilderness encounter. Or if you decide as a DM 
that the players will stumble across it. And in fact, the somewhere in the text, it says, and one of the tall tales will lead you here. And I went back and looked at the tall tales and I said, no, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't. So don't go looking for that tall tale that leads them to this cave. Um, it is gotten to through some of those wilderness encounters. Um, and I'm going to let you take over here, Teos. Uh, sure. I am certainly going to chime in about this because it's a very interesting location. <laughs> It is really interesting, uh, and I both like it and uh, kind of cringe about it because it's like, oh, geez, uh, wow, whoever came up with this, you are not uh, afraid of what you designed. Uh, <laughs> very fearless design here, and, and I like that. It's, it's, it's great. But mm -hmm. um, so what's going on here is this is a, an opportunity for you to reinforce the effects of Chardolin, mm -hmm. right? These, the ice that has been tainted by exposure to the crystal shard um, and which looks really cool and you can you know you can shape it into weapons and things like that but it can uh, cause a person to turn evil and, and obsess about gathering more of this stuff um, so this is a group of berserkers that are that are all bound to the frost maiden they worship her and they have exposure to to Chardon. Um they used to be part of the bear tribe but now they have uh, uh, sworn themselves to the frost maiden mm -hmm. and there are a number of elements that make this very challenging. So one is you could have just been teleported here, perhaps even after a combat. So, you know, <laughs> hope that's okay with you. I uh, hope you weren't too hurt. Um, the second element is that, and this is just, we should just say it right out the bat, which yeah. is that while you are inside of this layer, the berserkers cannot be dropped below one hit point because of a magical stone brazier that cannot be moved or damaged. Mm -hmm. A dispel magic dampens it for one hour. Uh, so that's good. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> you have very few ways that you can handle it, and the characters probably don't have them at this level. Right. So you're looking at invulnerable enemies, and you were teleported into middle of them. And there is no role-playing angle like there has been with the gnolls or other aspects like that where you can say, oh, you know, let's talk our way out. No, it, it's they are going to murder you. Yep. Um, you know, the thing is, it, it, it actually, this is an opportunity, I think, where it could have really driven home the horror angle mm -hmm. and made this into a you must escape. But it doesn't really do that. It, it in some ways treats it as a normal encounter. So it's very important, I think, when you're, because I think it's a fun one to run, but you've got to, you know, almost stamp onto your very own forehead. These things are invulnerable and, and there probably isn't much of a recourse here. So I've got to help the characters do that because, it, you know, if I, as a player, am dropped into a place where the creatures are not dying, I'm going to make the game assumption, the metagame assumption, that I must interact with something in this place to turn that off. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that would be a typical and normal uh, conclusion to draw. But in this case, you will probably not be able to do that, even if you find that object. Right. Um, and that's where it's kind of tough. Like it's not just break the pillar or something like that, or, you know, something you probably have on you, you, you could easily not have anything. And so then really is I got to escape yep. and fleeing is horrible in D&D unless you really set up the scenario for it. So it's touchy. And I think that's where in running this, you have to think through through it. Yep. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the setup of this place. It's yep. a winding, if you approach the normal way, sort of a winding 
path, elevated path that snakes up towards this imposing looking mound. There's some, or, or maw, and it really is a maw. There's some great artwork of this kind of face in the rock. And you go through this to get into the place, but <laughs> just to the side of it is an area where you have two white dragon wormlings. Mm -hmm. And in this kind of situation where you're on a winding path, yeah, you you are in breath weapon formation, uh, right right from the start. Uh, I thought it was interesting that this is another one of those layers where there are two potential entrances. Mm -hmm. uh, one, you know, go up the main one, or there's a like a an opening, a sluice where water comes out. And so, if you see that, you can climb into that. If you do climb into that, though, you're climbing right directly into the layer of the the white dragons. Uh, and even though they're wormlings. Uh, you're still a low level party probably at this point, you know, four, three, four, five in that area. Um, that could be, you know, if those breath weapons recharge, you don't do enough damage quickly. That can be very, very uh, sticky situation. Yeah. Uh, and, and even if they handle the wormlings well, then you're going into a place and they characters don't know this. They think they're going into a normal layer or something like this, uh, but they're going into a place where the creatures can't be killed. Um, right. that's rough, right? Like two, dra the yeah. two white dragon wormlings in this type of situation are, a, you know, exceedingly difficult challenge. Yeah. And then you're going into, you could, you're probably going to go in hurt or at least low on resources and mm -hmm. wow. So a couple things just about this layer in general, the description of the entrance is a portico. And when I first saw that, I thought, oh, they must mean portcullis <laughs> that's blocking it because they actually give you the stats of the portico and how you can break the portico. And then I, as I looked at the art, thankfully there was art. I'm like, but there's no blockage to the entrance. So I thought maybe they do mean an actual portico, which is not a, a, a barrier to an entrance, but the decorations around an entrance. Uh, so just if you're reading and you just happen to read portico and it doesn't click what that means, the entrance is not blocked. It's just finely decorated. Um, so you probably will not get your characters trying to break the portico because it really doesn't serve any purpose to break it. And I like that with 75 hit points, they'll even have trouble killing the portico. <laughs> yes, this is true. You you uh, die while you're trying to break the decorations around the mouth of the cave. Yeah, and the um, art is gorgeous. It does simply say that the two white dragons are watching this area. So it doesn't give you anything about, you know, maybe they're not around or, or that, I mean, it, it assumes they're going to come out and pounce you. So, oof. right. So, so those dragons can be wild cards. Um, although it doesn't give them any reason to talk to the characters. It basically just assumes that they will attack just as it assumes that the berserkers will attack. Uh, so I wanted to talk a bit about the berserkers in this invulnerability. Um, things to remember, things to play up. As Teo said, this is a perfect time to play up a horror angle of this sort of Jason Voorhees like figure. Uh, that you keep hitting and hitting and hitting and he just keeps coming after you and he's smiling about it because he knows that you can't hurt him while he's inside the cave. That's important to remember. It's also important to remember that as written, there is only one berserker uh, in the layer to start with. So 
hopefully that one berserker, while he is able to damage the characters, it will give the characters time to come to the realization and make all their skill checks when they realize that he can't be killed, why it's happening. So you as the DM can play up that angle for maybe a round or two of this guy's unstoppable and you don't know anything about it. Then let them know why. Get them that information quickly of you can't do anything to this guy and there's nothing you can do about it right now. Uh, I, mean, no, so, I did not realize it was only one. That makes well, it a lot better. It does make it a lot better, except as written, as soon as the characters leave, three other ones come up the entryway. Now, what's also important to remember is this only affects these berserkers while they are in the cave. Right. So if played carefully, right, because this is all about creating experiences right. as the DM, you can create the experience of and you should always, when you design, think through the most likely experience. Characters get teleported in, right? Because they find the ring elsewhere. Oh, on goes the ring. Let's bring everybody. Okay, everybody pops in. There's a guy who's right there, and he attacks you. Okay, we attack him back. We hit him three or four times. Well, we're still hitting him. And then you can say as the DM, well, that blow should have killed him based on all the wounds on him. But he he's not stopping. Oh, we make Arcana checks. It looks like he's con- you know being controlled by some strange uh, magic, the Shardlin, but he's also being reinforced by something. Oh, there's that brazier over there. Okay, can we interact with it? No, it doesn't look like there's any way to to break it. It's part of the infrastructure of the room. Um, but it maybe there's a range limit on this thing. That's what your Arcana check tells you. All right, we get out. Okay, as you're leaving, so the one berserker who you've been fighting is not going to leave. He's going to wait at the entryway. The other three berserkers are coming up this causeway. And when they see you, they rush to attack, but they want to get in the cave yeah, because they know. So then it becomes this game of cat and mouse, right? Are we going to go into the cave after them? Because they're not going to come out after us because they want this protection or maybe one of them comes out, hits you a bit and then runs back. In. <laughs> yeah. So you can make a, this a multiple genre experience of horror and then sort of high magic and then sort of a cat and mouse, almost yeah. comical. And I think you're right. That that fun, that fun is in them knowing that if these three berserkers get into the place, yep, that's bad news, right? So if you can hold them, you know, that's the win. That's the, the fun challenge to do, right? Hold them outside. Don't let them come in. Right. And they're going to try to bum rush through you. And that, yeah. you know, makes them oppose strength checks and things like that. And yep. bust in. And then that's really fun. Yeah. It's neat. Yep. So it, it can be fun. Uh, you just have to be very careful the way you present it. Um, one of the problems with this sort of encounter area is that they don't talk about any interaction between the white wormlings and the berserkers they're living in basically the same layer um they would have had to interact with each other at some point because the dragons are watching what's going on and the berserkers come and go frequently as they hunt so it doesn't even mention that they know each other are there it must be that the frost maiden has assigned them there and so they must coexist but yeah you're right a little bit could have explained that but yeah and and so you as the dm can change that story 
to to fit your needs, right? If the players are about to get wiped out, those white wormlings might come in and drive the berserkers away and then tell the characters you must do tasks for us because we saved your life, right? You could do lots of different things with that um, because it doesn't hurt the story because the story doesn't account for it. Yep. All right. Should we move on to the next one? Let's do it. Let's talk about the dark duchess. I'm going to take a big drink of water, Teo. Yeah, for it. this is a, this is a fun one. Um, though the premise is a little strange, you know, the tall tale is, oh, there's a frozen pirate ship in the ice. I bet it's got treasure. Okay, you know, I'm supposed to be stopping the frost maiden. Yep. Uh, the, the quest is, hey, we heard about this frozen pirate ship stuck in the ice off the coast. There's probably rum there. Here's a, you know, we'll give you 150 gold plus a fair price. Here's another case of your economy not working out, like with those dwarves and right. their metal. Uh, we're going to give you all this money for, you know, whatever casks of rum might be in there. Because, okay, yeah. right. uh, I'd like to know how much rum you can buy with 150 gold, but all right. But they, well, they want you to... When, when I'm out of rum, Teos, I would spend 150 <laughs> gold pieces on some. I could tell you that That's, right now. Maybe, yeah. It could okay. be. But theory, this is to resell it. Uh, but yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, then there's also the idea of the dark secrets that we talked about that are at the beginning of the book. Uh, one of the dark secrets that can exist is for a character to be directly tied to this vessel mm -hmm. uh, and the PC escape from this place. So you might have a PC that knows a whole lot about this and, and maybe wants to return, maybe doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. So that's interesting. The ship is a Luskan pirate ship that got caught here. And what makes this place really interesting and dastardly is that the white dragon, Arveaturus, uh, she stores her treasure here. And we talked about her before because she was uh, one of the wandering encounters that you can meet where you're not really supposed to fight her, but she has a, uh, her dead companion, human companion strapped to her uh, and, and treats that companion as if the wizard was still alive. So that's, um, uh, you know, you've got a, a, I forget if she's ancient or, but she's, she's a major, major dragon threat. Oh, yeah. And, and this is her place and she stores her treasure, some of her treasure here. So that's a, a, a big part of what's going on here, what creates the, the, the elements of this location. It's one of those places that it, it's, it's, it's a true location, you know, a boat trapped in ice with several story elements that are happening. And how you how those play out can happen very differently. So if you love chaotic and, and encounters, this is absolutely up for you because it can play out in many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but you could easily apply more control to it if you want things to be a little more uh, controllable. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I don't really have much to add to that. The, the, the story as it is, is while this is, uh, Arviaturus's lair, uh, she's often out hunting. So she comes back um, frequently, but she's often not there. So while uh, an ice troll was out hunting, it saw the ship. So it decided to come onto the ship. And on the chasing ship, seals, yeah. yeah, chasing seals. But on the ship are four kobolds that serve the dragon. So the troll has these kobolds trapped in one of the small chambers of the ship trying to beat down this door. And uh, so you've got this 
these kobolds, this ice troll, and possibly this ancient white dragon that's going to fly in at any time. Uh, so, and so, you know, the not only is all that chaos going on, but later the encounter tells you that uh, Ting Zhan, the Verbi, can show up to help the characters if they get in over their head. Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that most parties are going <laughs> to be in over their head before they even know they're in over their ankles. And that Tinjong should uh, probably show up uh, to to give them a little assistance. Yeah, and so the, it, this ship has three uh, levels, three whole, three, um, we call it decks. And um, main deck with a giant hole kind of in the middle of, of the deck. Uh, then you have the cabins level below and then the hole continues on through. And then down at the very bottom, is the the level that has the treasure in it and what can happen is you can sneak onto the ship just sort of wanting to check it out and then run into this ice troll maybe figure out what's going on with the kobolds and so i think there's some really opportunities for some great kind of hilarity there where you maybe partner with the kobolds um it could be pretty interesting. There's also like the captain, Captain Blue Moon is dead and sealed away in the cabin. And I was sure that was going to come to life, but I guess they figured we can only have but so many elements. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and what was, what was odd about that was it said, you know, he, he starved to death before he froze. And I thought, okay, well, he could have gotten out of the ship and actually walked across the ice because a bunch of people from his ship did so, but I guess he wanted to go, down with the ship even though the ship didn't go down but uh but then it said you know his skeleton is there and it has these things on it and i'm like wait a second he froze to death but he has a skeleton i i that was completely lost on me but um you know feel free to change it if the players are like me and go how come he's a skeleton if right. he's to death if did he someone to did someone strip him of his flesh when no one was looking there um, was a heat wave yeah. And then it got cold again. Exactly. <laughs> you know what happens if you freeze and heat and freeze and heat and freeze and heat. Oh, yep. So, uh, so, <laughs> so, so, so just keep that in mind. The other thing that I, oh, I am terrible with maps when there are multiple levels because I can never tell what levels, what, how the levels meet up. Uh, so it took me forever to realize that D one on uh, the cabins deck is the same as D1 on the main deck. They, they are the same area. So just keep that in mind. If they had just put a little D1 over both the main deck and the cabin because they're the yeah. same same level, then that would have saved me about five minutes of looking and pondering and trying to get my uh, verbally processing brain into a spatially processing area. Um, yeah, that's a good point because the, the middle of the two of the three decks that plan in the vision of the deck plans mm -hmm. uh, is really just showing that under those aft and four decks are these cabins. Right. So that's what they're trying to show you there. Yeah, so yeah you're right. And, and there is a little bit of the problem that we talked about last week where in certain areas of this uh, ship, there are spaces where you may have combat where no one can really move. Yeah. Um, so again, just make it larger or you know, do whatever you need to do to, to make it work in that uh, situation. And this is the kind of, you know, even if I love minis and I have a ship mini, I would probably run this 
theater of the mind or, mm-hmm. or, or just reduce the number of rooms because yeah, it's just going to be, I mean, when everybody's in tiny areas like that, minis play is just not particularly fun. So yep. you want to open up the play, but in theater of the mind, it all works fine. Cause you don't worry about that. Yeah. You can fit. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And one thing I love is how in one area, the treasure is frozen into something, you know, the tre- is frozen. So there's layers. So you, at the first layer, you get certain amounts of treasure. Then you have to dig down into the next layer to get the next. And the whole time you may be waiting for a dragon to come back. So yeah. if, if you let them know, if you let the players know that, yeah, there's been a dragon here and there are, you know, you find a couple of white scales here that were obviously recently molted off of a dragon. Uh, that becomes a tense thing. Uh, as they're trying to dig through these layers to get to what is basically more uh, valuable treasure as you go down. Yeah. And I, I want to say that a little more strongly that I think that that is part of the fun here is, is, you know, there's a frozen crag cat that is basically a trophy that uh, she has placed here uh, by her board. And that's the perfect moment to just say, you know, okay, you're looking at this frozen layers of treasure you're looking at this crag cat, you know, you're going to do the math and know that this is a dragon's lair, a white dragon, seemingly very large. And, you know, so what do you want to do about all this treasure here? And it's going to take you an hour for each layer, which uh, a layer of treasure, frozen treasure. And, you know, you're going to expect, of course, the best stuff at the bottom. And maybe you can even see some of the items, you know, through the mm-hmm. ice. Right. Uh, but each hour is a 20% chance the dragon shows up. Right. And what's really important here is, uh, well, so there, there are a couple of fun things also in the treasure. Like there's a fake wand of Orcus. Because <laughs> everyone needs a fake wand of Orcus. That's great. Uh, I, I'm just sad they didn't put the Acquisitions Incorporated brand on it. Right. That would have yeah. been, yeah, been great. That would have been perfect. But uh, then, uh, so, you know, if the dragon doesn't show up, it's almost like a letdown. Uh, yeah. Though certainly the Astral piece is fun. But the kind of crazy thing, and there just there's not a lot of you know supporting text here, is what how this feels if the dragon shows up uh, with this map and what the characters are going to do. But I love moments like this because the players are probably going to come up with something clever um, if you give them the very important news of you can't win this fight. Yep. And that's something I would do automatically, right? Like the moment they hear it. You know, it should be something so horrendous. You know, you know, that is the sound of something you don't want to fight. Mm-hmm. Now you see it, you know, this is a dragon larger than any, you know, it's what you've seen in the storybooks, mm-hmm. the leveling armies, right? Like just, you, you know, if someone thinks to, to attack it, I would say, you know, make me an intelligence check. Yeah. You know, it's going to vaporize you, right? Like, okay. So yeah. that very quickly you want them to go to, we need to cleverly escape from this thing. Yep. That and is... If that is not the message, then this is going to end in tragedy. Yes. <laughs> so you, yeah. you want that to be the fun and for them to work hard to try to get out. Uh, there are some options, you know, like it points out that if the characters are somehow to dislodge Melthorund, the dead wizard strapped to the dragon, that will cause the dragon to completely lose focus and mm-hmm. try to regain him. Um, and so there are a number of you know possibilities there, and of course Ting Zhang the Verbeek can show up and cast Fog Cloud to cover their retreat, which may be necessary. But but I think it's fun to see what the players could come up with, what their characters will do. Sure, sure. 
yeah, so overall, that's a pretty fun, uh, fun area and set of encounters. But again, you as the DM have to sort of decide what experience you want to give and then, uh, you know, wrap it up in that sort of package. I think we're going to push forward and do one more because we've right. only done two today. Let's do the third and final one today, which is id ascendant. And if things have been weird before, it, things get real weird here. So uh, the tall tale that leads you here talks about a comet that fell from the sky. And since then, folks have been receiving mental messages in the language they don't understand. They think the comet might have something to do with it. And I bet you could find it easy enough, even in this weather. Um, the quest is that some 10 towners with um, that are psychically sensitive, ask the characters to go check out this area because they've been getting this message that's keeping them up at night. Uh, and they sense the direction that it's coming from so they can point the characters in that direction. Or if you want to just release the Kraken right away, one of the character secrets is uh, I was brought here by spacefaring mind flayers. The ship crashed and I escaped after nearly freezing to death and crossing the tundra. Um, so some of my captors may have survived the crash and might come looking for me. So that, I guess, is a reason to go back to a crashed Spelljammer uh, ship. I just like to imagine all the characters, right, who, you know, now I had you know, a couple of weeks of benching together, sitting around the campfire, and one goes, yeah, I got a story. <laughs> I just thought I'd bring this up all of a sudden. You yeah, know. exactly. Oh, by, by the, the way, way. Yeah, I've, I've flown through space. Uh, so... Spelljammer confirmed. Yeah, as as an area, it is interesting. It is uh, a nautiloid, and Teos can give us the history of the nautiloid in D and <laughs> I mean, the really easy thing is the nautiloid looks like a sort of nautilus shell, like like the creature, uh, and it um, has sort of tentacle-looking things that come up the front to make a big ram. It looks like a new version that can actually grapple, which is kind of cool. Uh, and it is a ship that is typically flown by mind flayers, uh, or exclusively by mind flayers. Um, and it does seem like in fifth edition, this is made further. It's not just wood that has been fashioned cleverly in the style. It now seems to be a true like biological vessel, which is really neat. So, so I like it that this has, you know, it's classic design, classic lore. But it is advanced and, and, and made into be something that's truly mind flareish and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, psionic in nature. Yep. So as you, uh, well, first of all, it's very easy to see. They describe it as like this huge monstrosity of a spaceship. It's actually smaller than the ship that you were just on. But hey, okay, you know, it's big. It's big. Uh, you first come across the door, which is described as a sphincter. Because well, first you get the carrion crawlers. Oh, right. The carrion crawlers that were kept inside as pets by the, uh, the, the gnome illithids uh, have, uh, have escaped. They're outside scouting around. So, but they don't try to kill you. They try to drag you back onto the ship. Uh, and, and give you as a gift, like a cat with a squirrel outside, uh, yeah. brings it back to, to show you how proud it is to bringing you this gift. Uh, I interrupted you talking about sphincters. Oh, well, <laughs> if I had a nickel. Uh, 
So yeah, the doors are described as sphincters with all of the visuals that go along with that. Uh, each interior door aboard the ship is a fleshy sphincter that opens when a creature that has telepathy approaches within five feet of it. And it could also be just pried or tickled open, which requires an action. So if you want to get your sphincter tickling in, this is the adventure to do it. Ryan will give it. Yeah, I mean, this, I just can only imagine that Perkins wrote this one himself, but it's possible that someone else just channeled his dark powers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I laughed at this. I mean, tickled up and right. You would hear this on a live stream of Acquisitions Incorporated. Oh, absolutely. So the, uh, the story behind this is these uh, gnomes are, are mind players. They're mind player gnomes uh, called ceramorphs, gnome ceramorphs. So they were piloting this ship, searching the area for things that, you know, gnome illithids look for, apparently. And it crashed in a blizzard. And they cannot get it started again without a psi crystal. So they are, um, if you are in the mood or your players are in the mood to negotiate with Ceramorphs, uh, you can promise to bring them a psi crystal so their ship can fly away. The problem is they only have 24 hours worth of life support left on the ship before it turns cold. Now, you can always change this. Um, and, and I would because tw- yeah. what, like you can barely get anywhere mm-hmm. in 24 hours and back. Like, right. Yeah. And you don't know. You probably don't know where it is unless you happen to find it. already. Exactly. So. Yeah. This is one of those great ideas that the the uh, the consequences weren't thought through of only having 24 hours in an area where it's really hard to travel. And, and I don't know that you have to give it a time, right? It, literally, sure. it can just be that the life support is failing and they are working constantly to try to keep this thing running. And at any point, it could give out. Yep. Which is a very good way to, to uh, say it. So uh, the so if you meet the Ceramorphs, there are two of them. They, they're CR5. But they aren't supposed to attack right away, especially if you meet them first. However, in certain areas, in a certain area, I sh- should say, there is a uh, flesh golem, again, CR5, uh, as well as three squidlings, which are young gnome ceramorphs. And if you mess with the squidlings, then the ceramorphs are very less like uh, likely to, uh, yeah. to negotiate with you because you're killing their their little ones basically, and these squidlings for me are problematic in a lot of different ways. They're they're cool but they're problematic because they are basically presented as psychotic baby Yodas, right? <laughs> they're supposed to be these cute little things, but and they're only CR one half. However, if they latch onto you while you're unconscious or grappled, they can do 27 points of damage and probably eat your brain. Yeah. Uh, so they're, how would you describe them? I mean, yeah, no, I think that's great. It, absolutely. They are, and, and, it, and it tells you these things are like little kids, which just also feels like Perkins, you know, like, like his vision of child, of, of having a child. Uh, you know, they just want what they see in front of them, which is a brain, mm-hmm. and they're going to come at you. And the most likely scenario is that you're going to go into the large cargo doors on the cargo deck, mm-hmm. and you're going to find 
you know, a flesh golem CR5, three squidlings, and the flesh golem's just going to attack, and the squidlings are just going to attack, and you're going to attack. And yeah, in two rounds, a gnome shows up. There's no way you haven't killed one of those squidlings by then. Right. It, and it, then it's on, and, and all the negotiation is stripped from yeah. the, the possibilities, according right. to what they're saying. And well, I, you know, like, what did we want? And so it's, it's again, it's one of those where I don't know, you know, the design did not facilitate the options. Yeah. It, it, it does say that the squidlings will not attack unless a character is knocked unconscious. Well, with a CR5 monster and maybe especially a flesh golem, there's a good chance that a level, you know, four or five PC, if the flesh golem just takes one character and starts to whoop on them, will uh, will knock that character unconscious and then the squidlings move in. So it is a, it's a, I think again, it's if it's you're tough, up on your, yeah, yeah, if you're up on your Mandalorian, I think that that is the way to play it. Like if you can make them look kind of cute, but but dangerous mm -hmm. and they're like ducking, you know, hiding, scared, but curious behind crates. And that if there was a situation where someone's knocked unconscious and they were to come forth, but like tentatively and like they're looking at you almost for approval right? while they're going to go eat your buddy. Yeah. You could maybe, you know, negotiate or interact with them. And that could be a fun, right. That could be a fun scene, like yeah. where you leave it up to the character, how to handle it. But, but their intent is, clearly within this like i don't quite know what i'm doing i'm a toddler that's going for the candy that i was told not to touch right like yeah if you can dress it up that way i think that can be very fun and compelling yeah and the squid leagues themselves like i said they're they're cr one half creatures so they're like oh barely a threat and yes they're the the dcs for to avoid their stunning or their grapple is only a seven so you know, what are the chances that a character rolls less than a seven? Well, it's, for some cases, eight and 20 uh, is the chance for certain things, right? Because at low levels, you could have a minus one in some of these areas. So uh, you just, I, I wish that they hadn't been this dangerous as even as a CR one half creature, because they, they work in this particular encounter, they can work because they don't attack right away. But I feel like, a month, a year, two years from now, when some designer sits down and goes, okay, I'm going to go through CR one half monsters to see what to put in my adventure. Oh, here's, here's a squidling CR one half. I could put eight of these in and it will still be an easy encounter. Oh, wait. Uh, this one got lucky, you know, and stunned a couple of people and now hope oh, they didn't have a chance to act yet. And these other ones come. Oh, look, everyone's dead. Um, yeah. And in this encounter, you know, if the scenario is you fight this flesh golem, which for level four characters is a hard encounter, mm -hmm. not even adding the squidlings. If then the squidlings were to activate and in round two, a gnome ceramorph joins the battle and their CR5, yep. that's going to be super nasty. And if you add the second gnome ceramorph, I know which way I'm betting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, but, I'm not. I'm not betting on too many characters in that. And so that, I think that's the, the the situation that you as DM have to decide is: Would you like to nudge this towards the the role playing aspect, mm -hmm. um, and or do you want to just have this be a fight the aliens? And you can go either way with it. 
but it's probably worth knowing which one you think you like and which one you think your players would like and nudging in that direction through your descriptions and through your setup. Yep. Cause if you have them meet the ceremonies first and they do strike a bargain, then you can add the squidlings doing cute slash horrifying things like, you know, they're talking to the PCs, they're talking to the ceremonies. Well, one ceremony tries to stun one of the characters and the other, or one squidling tries to stun, you know, or they, all three of them try to yeah. stun one character. And then the ceremony says, no, don't do that. Don't eat their brains. They're friends. Right. 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 We'll get you brains later. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, along this, too, in terms of guidance. So uh, one thing you can do is the, the nautiloid has the, the cargo deck, which is sort of obvious, close to the ground, big doors. That's probably where you're going to go in. But you can also climb up to either the battle deck, which gives you access to stairs, or to the command deck and as a door. Um, and so that could let them go straight to a ceremorph, which then is gonna be a talk encounter, mm-hmm. unless they you know, come in and immediately go off on this thing, you know, there's gonna be a conversation to be had. And then the stuff on the lower decks, you might not even necessarily see, or if you do see it, it's gonna be in a very different way. So yep. think through that, you know, maybe you want to have a thin layer of ice over those things if you don't want them to go that way or yeah mm-hmm. and then point you, you have the cool treasure that you would get from an alien technology ship and it uses the alien technology section of the dmg you may have thought hey there's an alien technology section to the dmg by golly there is um, and so when they find the laser rifles you can have them use the alien technology section to figure out how well they learn how to use it if they end up killing themselves. Uh, and then it becomes a limited, uh, essentially a limited weapon slash magic item uh, yeah. to, to use these laser rifles. Yeah, they, they can't recharge. They have 30 shots. They deal 3d8 damage for the laser rifles. The Ceramorphs have laser pistols, 33 shots, 3d6 radiant. So they're powerful, no doubt. Uh, yep. But you don't get your proficiency bonus, obviously. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that's fun about this ship is the helm. In the ceiling is a bioluminescent jellyfish that forms a star chart of constellations, mm-hmm. which is super awesome. That is cool. And the ship's helm has an orb, which allows communication with the ship itself, which you get to see in sort of the fleshiness of the walls. And it's sort of pumping dark fluid through its walls. It's really cool. Um, in fact, if, if you have combat, I think descri- describing a miss as hitting into this wall and, and kind of the blood coming out of the walls would be really cool, dark, hikerish blood. Yeah. Um, the ship's helm has an orb that allows you to communicate with the ship itself. And inside is the consciousness of several mind flares running through the ship's veins. Mm-hmm. The helm can only be used by mind flares, which makes me wonder whether you can apply more for shape change to use it. There's no coverage of that question there. But again, the intention, as in previous adventures where they've added a spell damning helm, is that you are not supposed to be able to use it. So close, it's so far. Spell jammer unconfirmed. Oh, and then there's the last little thing. Yeah. Uh, well, there's two, there's two last little things. Oh, yeah, there are the two. First, the first last <laughs> little thing <laughs> is that if, you, if they can't get the ship up and running, the Ceramorphs, like, all good spacefaring species do not want this to fall in enemy hands. So they self-destruct. <laughs> um, so it's a 60 second timer. And if you are in the ship, when it goes off, you take 70 points of disintegration damage, which probably will not. It's, it's more than exfoliating for your PC. Let's put yeah. it that way. <laughs> oh yeah. 
that's gonna turn some ash and hopefully you didn't have big fights in here because as you're leaving uh the ceramorphs previously let loose a bulet or bule if you so choose uh because they didn't want to feed it. It was something they had captured. They crashed. Oh, we can't feed this thing. and We're going to let it go. So that's sort of hanging around to attack the characters as they leave the ship. This is a wonderful nod to uh, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. Yep. Where I, I believe there's art where they're unload. The robots are like unloading a belay. Yep. And so it, it, I love that here. So this thing has been, you know, dumped to, yeah, so they don't feed it. And yeah, this boule is CR five, so yeah, CR five seems to see the seems to be the gold standard for this uh, area. And you can only assume this thing's going to come un, from underneath them and just give them all sorts of trouble. So yeah, and I, I like that the 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 ceramorphs just forget to mention it. Yep, right. So again, if if the characters leave and they're especially if they're hurting, um, that you may want to have the uh, ceramorphs, if they're on friendly terms, say, oh, by the way, we released this creature. It may be out there in the snow somewhere. But and, you know, and that, I like the idea that if it says if the characters don't kill it, the, it might gradually migrates toward 10 towns. And I think that's where it would be great to just describe like uh, stories of, of cattle missing, uh, you know, sheep missing, uh, an explorer missing, and just let the players sort of go like, oh, we better go deal with that because... Right. And there were strange burrow marks in the area yeah, where they right. uh, where they were taken. Yep. I, I, oh. And I love any opportunity to to push the implications of choices, right? So if they were to, to run away from it, just you want to rub that in their noses as, oh. yep, this is what's happening because you didn't kill it. Consequences. Consequences are great for stories. Uh, yeah. So that, that was the three areas that we could cover today. Next time we will continue to cover the other areas of Icewind Dale that are covered in chapter two. So, Teos, thank you for sharing your expertise with us again this week. Sean, it's my pleasure. Thank you for sharing your expertise. This is awesome. All right. Well, let's do it again next week then. All right. Sounds good. It's a plan. It's a deal. And thank you all out there for listening, uh, for sharing your thoughts about the show and about D&D with us. And thank you to our patrons who give us a few shekels each month to Thank uh, you. pay for everything. So you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Or if you can't do that, no problem. Thanks for listening. And thank you for sharing our links and our podcast with others on your social media. And speaking of social media, Teos, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter at AlphaStream. I visit the Misdirected Mark forums and I maintain a blog at alphastream.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to those forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com to talk to Teos and I, talk to Teos and me, I'm getting my grammar straight, uh, about what we talk about on the show. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, what would you like to do now, sir? Let's go kill some monsters that would otherwise eat our brains. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's